As we come to God's Word, let's come before Him. Let's ask Him to open our minds and our hearts so that we will receive the truth of what He has to say to us this morning from His Word. So let's just come before Him in prayer. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we've been singing your praises and and what magnificent truths that you forgave our sin in Jesus' name. And therefore, we have hope and we can tell the world. Lord, we thank you for your word which instructs us how to live. Shows us the mind of God, the very words of God breathed out to us, as we saw last week, the Word itself. And so, Lord, thank you that you've given us this Word, but we pray, Lord, make the words alive to us. And as your Spirit works in us, as we sit here in this auditorium this morning, may we know that you are working in each each and every one of our hearts. Lord, you know what each and every one of us needs. You know how you are changing us to be like Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, do your work in us this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And then give us feet to walk in obedience, we pray. Do your work in us now. We plead with you. Amen. Well, if you hadn't noticed yet, we are towards the end of the year, um, and so this will be the last sermon in Hebrews uh, for this year anyway, Lord willing. Um, And so we're in Hebrews chapter 8, and then we'll carry on with the studies in Hebrews uh, in February, because January is a write-off, no one's here, and all kinds of stuff happens, and so when the church is together again um, fully, then we'll get together around Hebrews in February. In the meantime, don't fear, God's Word will be proclaimed here. We'll just be doing it from other parts of God's Word um, as we go through the holiday period. But we come to Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to read it first. And then I'll explain to us how we're going to tackle this quite large chunk of Scripture. Um, And so let's see what God says to us. So Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better 
since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, take note, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now there's a lot there. But we're going to break it up into three pictures. It's the best way I can do this. And we'll look at those pictures soon. Have you ever stopped to list the sins that God has forgiven you for? And to thank Him for His mercy. You see, when we do that, your and I motives may be pure and our hearts may be thankful, but our understanding of God is wrong. Why? You see, when God forgives, He forgets. It's a deliberate act of forgetting. It's an act of mercy. Don't you think? When He forgets what I've done... It's an act of mercy. We are the only ones who remember. And his new covenant with us guarantees his mercy. And you're going to see how we tie those thoughts together. And so the overall theme of chapter 8 of Hebrews is a theme of mercy on display. And there are three pictures we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to look at Jesus in the heavens... Seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the first picture of mercy. The second picture of mercy, we're going to see Jesus in his ministry in the tabernacle or the place of worship. He is there busy with ministry. And that's a ministry of mercy to us. There's the second picture. And then the third picture we're going to look at is the new covenant that is established between God and mankind that is also, all it speaks about is God's mercy. So those are the three pictures we're going to look at. I'm not going to go through every single verse. It would get too complicated. We're going to kind of combine those thoughts. So firstly, Jesus' position, verse 1. Here's our first picture. You need to see this in your mind's eye because a Jew who read this or heard this would see the picture. Jesus sat down where? At the right hand of the Father in heaven. When did he sit down there? After he had risen from the dead and he ascended into the heavens, it says, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. You see, 
That's unusual because a priest in the temple, as we've already discovered in our last study, a priest in the temple never sat down. There was no place in the infrastructure of the temple for a priest to sit and have a rest. Nowhere. A priest was always serving. You say, what, what about the mercy seat? Well, the mercy seat was in the Holy of Holies. And it wasn't a seat. It was a place where God was present. When the high priest came into his presence once a year, God was present there on the mercy seat. But no priest would dare sit on that seat. God was there. So it says Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father's throne in glory, in heaven. So we need to look at those three things now. He sat down. His work of sacrificing was completed. When was it completed? It was completed on the cross. How do we know that? Jesus cried from the cross. What did he cry? It is finished. And if he said it's finished, it's finished. And so he ascended from earth after he'd risen from the dead, and he went to the heavens. He went to sit, not just in any place in heaven, he went to sit at the right hand of the Father. Now to us, it doesn't mean anything much. So what? We're just on YouTube and all these other things. It doesn't matter where you sit, you don't even have to dress properly. But Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. In Eastern kingship, the person who sat on the right hand of the king was the one who was being honored. He sat at the right hand of who? Of the Father in heaven. He had done his work. He was honored. That's not all. He sat on the right hand of the Father because he was sitting in the seat of power. The person who sat on the right-hand side of the king in the east was the one who was the CEO. He was the executive officer. He was the one who'd been given delegated authority to. Jesus sat on the right hand of the Father to execute the Father's will. That's not all. You see, in the Jewish mindset, sitting on their right-hand side meant something else. The Sanhedrin, if you know what the Sanhedrin was, it was the Jewish legal court system. And the way they set up their court system was the judge would sit in the middle, and on his left would sit a scribe, and on his right would sit a scribe. And the scribe on the left would write up all the things that, had been, that were being charged against someone. And so he recorded all the condemnations. And on the right of the judge sat another scribe. And this scribe wrote down all the acquittals, everything that had been forgiven. Guess where Jesus is? He's sitting on the right hand of the Father, extending the Father's mercy. His judgment is there, but his mercy is there, and Jesus is in that seat. So it's not just sitting down at the right hand of the Father. There's lots here, and lots more, and I'm not going there now. You see, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the picture we're to see here is of Jesus sitting down in this place of honor and power to execute the Father's will, but also to extend His mercy to you and I, those He's died for. It's going to be an awesome day in heaven one day. It's going to be a fearful day, but an awesome day. Fearful because of who God is, 
But it's going to be awesome because as we stand in front of God, we won't be sitting, by the way. We'll probably be flat on our faces. But as we appear before Almighty God, His mercy will extend to us. Why? Because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Hey? Come on, Baptists. Wow, thank you. I'm really working on you guys. So there's his position. He's sitting down in heaven. But there's a second picture here, and that's Jesus in the tabernacle, and you're going to have to follow through verses 2 to 5. I'm condensing thoughts here. Jesus, sat, Jesus was working in the tabernacle. You see, the word tabernacle, is the literal translation of tabernacle is tent. Now, don't think your average camping tent, but it's a tent. It's a place of meeting where God dwells with his people. He pitches his tent, and we dwell there with him. And it's a place where the priests ministered to. And we read of the first tabernacle made of animal skins and cloth, and it moved around with the nation. Exodus 28, you can go and read all those very specific things that God said, I want my tabernacle to look like this. Why did he do that? Why did he have very specific things? Because he wanted to teach them, when you come together and worship me, I will be there with you. You will gather together with me, and I want you to worship me my way. You don't just come before me any old way. And so he gave them very specific instructions. But the tabernacle was not meant to be a permanent structure. Every time the Israelites moved, they had to take it down and then move with it. And it came with them. And so it was a temporary structure. There's a picture there. And then when the Old, Test Old Covenant priests ministered there in this tent, they also knew it was for a limited time. Why? Because some of them would die. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be there permanently. And this earthly tabernacle they served in was also a temporary one. And then Solomon came along, and what did he do? He set up an amazing structure of a temple. It was still a tabernacle, a place of meeting with God. And it, you can go and read Solomon's temple, one of the greatest structures ever built. But where is it now? It was destroyed temporary. And then Herod came along in the Roman times and he built the Herodian temple. And by everything we read, it was a magnificent structure, even greater than what Solomon had made. And it was built of cedar, gold, white marble pillars, marble everywhere. But at the time of writing the book of Hebrews in history, that temple would be destroyed in less than five years. That magnificent structure in AD 70 was brought down to rubble. And today this temple has never been rebuilt in Jerusalem. The Jews who pray are praying at the only remaining part of Herod's second temple, and that's the western wall of the temple. That's all that remains of the original temple, the Wailing Wall. But you see, this earthly tent... And the temple, the sanctuaries, were only copies of this heavenly sanctuary. And they were built by man. And so the sanctuaries and the priests who served them were only meant to be, here's our word again, temporary. You're going to hear that a lot today. And the priests who served in the tabernacle and the temple, 
They were only a picture of what was to come later in Christ. All the sacrifices they made every single Sabbath all pointed forward to a true sacrifice which would be made once and for all. And so the key words describing this earthly tabernacle are three of them, or four. Here they are, the key words. Temporary, copy, picture pointing forward, shadows of reality. And there's our theme for Hebrews. We've come across this several times. Hebrews talks about shadows, shadows, shadows pointing to a greater reality. All right, you with me there? The, the tabernacle. But in contrast, the verses we're looking at in verses 5, uh, five to whatever it was, 2 to 5, the, the sanctuary that Jesus serves in is where? It's on the right hand of the Father in, in heaven. It's no longer on earth. It's the true tabernacle, says our text, verse 2, which the Lord pitched, not man. All those other things people had to put together under God's instructions. But this sanctuary, God builds. And therefore, it will never perish. Therefore, it can't rot. It can't crumble. It can't be destroyed ever. God builds His sanctuary. And so the key words describing this heavenly tabernacle are, and we've used one already here, it's the true tabernacle. The true, as in not shadowy, the real one. It's the true tabernacle. It's permanent. It's unaffected by human intervention. It's unaffected by earthly happenings. Praise the Lord for that in this current climate. His sanctuary and everything that's being achieved there is not affected by what happens on this earth and COVID. Our hope is in there with Christ. And here's another key word. It's actual reality. It's the place of actual forgiveness and mercy. You see, Christ is now serving in this tabernacle of heaven, and His sacrifice is finished. His atoning work is finished, but His priestly ministry is not finished. He's serving in His tabernacle. Who's He serving? You and I. He's serving you and I as the priest in heaven. And so every time we bring thanks, every time we gather together and come and sing His praises, every time we dedicate our lives back to Him, it's an imperfect commitment before the Father, right? And that's why we need Jesus Christ. He takes our gifts of praise. He makes them perfect before the Father. None of us can praise God. None of us can thank the Father. None of us can commit ourselves or rededicate ourselves to Him in worship. None of us can state our obedience or try to be, be obedient before God apart from Jesus Christ. Even if we come and confess our sins to the Father, we can't do that without Jesus Christ. And when we're forgiven, we can't forgive ourselves. He forgives us. We can't do anything without Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, we are nothing, Wanganuiites. It's our city motto. And so Colossians 3.17 says this. Now listen to the inclusion word. Whatever. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all. Another inclusive word. In the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do you see Christ extending his mercy to us in the heavens, standing there as priest, serving you and I in the sanctuary? Now, there's just the last thought I want to add under this picture. You see, while on earth, Jesus never went into the temple and said to the priests, Hey, guys, get out of here. I'm here now. I'm serving. You're out. You're fired. He never did that. Why? Because he wasn't qualified. Hey? He's God. He was in the wrong tribe, according to the old covenant. Levites could serve in the temple. He wasn't from Levi. And so Jesus went to the temple like any other Jew would. Okay, one day he lost it with them and chucked the tables over. But he went into the temple like every other Jew would on the Sabbath. He went and worshipped with them. He didn't try to chuck them out as priests. And then one day they said to him, we want you to come and read from the book. And so he got up to read. And what changed everything was, and it brought shadow joining reality, was when he had finished his reading, he said, and I have come to fulfill this in your very presence. They didn't get it. Shadow had met reality, and they wanted to stone him. Jesus serving in his sanctuary, showing them mercy, but they wouldn't receive it. Do you see the two pictures so far? There's a third one to come. And that's his covenant, verses 6 to 13. If you look at those verses, what is it saying here? It's saying that Jesus didn't serve as a priest under the old covenant, under the shadow regime, if I can call it that. Because his service is, verse 6, a more excellent ministry. Under the new covenant, his, his ministry is a real ministry. What do I mean by that? You see, he is a true mediator. The Old Testament priests were in roles as mediators. Listen to what I'm saying. As they served as priests, they were serving in the roles of priests. They would come before God, they would be the intermediaries, and they would, the, the sinful human beings would come before them, and they would come before the Lord and ask the Lord to forgive the people's sin. The priests couldn't forgive the sin. They had to ask God to do it. They were playing the role of mediator. They couldn't take sins away from people. They asked God to forgive and to take sin away. However, Christ is not just in the role of mediator. He is the actual, sinless, effective mediator. When he forgives sins, they are actually forgiven in reality. When he takes sin from our lives, it is actually removed in that very millisecond when we ask for forgiveness, that, for, that sin is taken from our lives and never seen again because he is an effective mediator. Do you get that? There's a difference. How does he do this? How did he actually remove sin? Why? Because it's based on the new covenant, this new agreement that he made between God and man. And Jesus Christ himself brought this about by his blood. We've just been celebrating communion. Luke twenty-two twenty says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
You see, the old covenant had failed. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is pointing out to his Jewish hearers and readers. The old covenant had failed, not because of the covenant itself. Who had given him the covenant? God had given him that covenant. But there were people involved. And there's the weak link. The old covenant failed not because the covenant itself failed, but because of the flawed and sinful human beings who had to try and keep God's laws. Jeremiah 31, and that's that long passage in the middle of Hebrews 8, is Jeremiah 31. It was the prophet pointing out to the Hebrews their sins before the Lord and what God would do about it. And so, in verses 8 and 9, he points out that the people failed. The old covenant didn't work because of people. People sinned. And so, a price had to be paid in blood. And now you need to see this picture of mercy. A price had to be paid for the failure of human beings. And it had to be paid in blood. You see, covenant and blood always go together. And so when a covenant was made, an animal would be hacked to pieces and it would be laid on two sides. And the people that were coming into covenant would walk through the middle. We've talked about this before. They'd walk through the middle between these bloodied pieces of animal. And in that, in, and in that walk through, what, would be, what was being said was that if you break this covenant, then a curse is on you. What is the curse? May you become like these animals. So what did God do with Abraham? Genesis 15 records for us that when God came into covenant with Abraham, he also said to Abraham, I want you to hack animals in half and I want you to put them on opposite sides. And then when, Anna, when, when Abraham got up to walk through with God, God said to him, it's not there in words, but this is what happened. God said to him, sit down. I will walk through on your behalf. The old covenant is going to fail. I will walk through on your behalf. And so when the old covenant was broken because of people's sin, this awful curse came down on the people that God had said because sin has to be paid for. And so the curse of being hacked to pieces was on the people. But God said, I have taken that curse on myself. I walked through the middle. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who took the curse of dismemberment on himself and died on your behalf and mine. Do you see how it puts together? He died on the cross. And then he made this new covenant with his people that forever I will come in on your behalf. I have done it. And that's why the new covenant will succeed, verses 10 to 12. Because it's based on what God will be doing in believers. It's not based on us. It doesn't mean we do nothing. It means we try and live lives of obedience before God, but we will fail. But who will never fail? Jesus Christ. He has walked through those halves of the covenant for our sakes. He's taken the curse of breaking the, the law on himself. And so he walks on our behalf. He's obedient on our behalf. When we fail, he never fails. When we sin, he never sins. He takes our sins away. 
the new covenant will succeed. And how does God say it will happen? Jeremiah 31, and you can go and look at these verses in verses 10 to 12 now. He says, I will internalize my law in people's hearts and minds. I will write my law on their hearts. And I will put it on their minds. God is internalizing it for us. And it's not just external rule keeping anymore. God is doing a work in us. And that's why it will succeed. The new covenant will succeed because God would once again draw near to his people. He says in those verses from, from, Isaiah, from Jeremiah, I will be your God and you will be my people. Where have we heard that before? In our studies in Deuteronomy. God said, you are my people. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. But they'd broken the covenant and that, that relationship had been broken. Now he says, I will once again be your God. You will be my people through the new covenant. There's another thing, Jeremiah 31. They would all know the Lord personally, says our text. In other words, he would give people direct access to himself and his word, as opposed to the old covenant. So there's no more waiting on a priest's interpretation, as some churches preach. That's the whole point of the Reformation, historically. Martin Luther says, why should a priest interpret God's word? We all have direct access. And so if we give people the word in their own language, then they have direct access to God because we're under the, the new covenant. So in other words, I'm doing myself out of a job because I'm standing up front here. No. Am I bringing a new word to you? I hope not. You see, we all have the same access to God and His Word. We all have the same resident teacher in us, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. We all need to put the same time into our relationship with God, you and I. We all need to do the same studying of His Word. Yes, you and I. But my job specifically here is because you pay me to do it, is to bring that Word to our attention. We all sit under God's word, equally under his word. But today you've paid me to bring this bit to your attention. Thank you. But we are all under God's word, equally. No one is any greater than anyone else. I am one like you. And so with his help, we will be able to hear what he says. But there's something else from Jeremiah 31. It says, God will actually forgive their sins and remove their sins and purify his people. You see, under the old covenant, sins were not forgiven and forgotten at that time. They were covered. And they were foreshadowed with an anticipated true forgiveness that would come later when Jesus Christ would appear. Under the new covenant, every sin is forgiven. Every sin is permanently removed and forgotten. One day when we're standing before God in judgment, and we will be there in judgment before God as believers, every human being will be before Him in judgment. In other words, He's the judge and we will stand before Him. God will never as believers dredge up old cows from the ditch of sins that have been forgiven. Never. Why, how do I know that? Because he says, I have forgotten them. 
I find great, great encouragement because I know my life and I know what is forgiven. And it's hard to forgive those, forget those things. But God has. And therefore, he says, verse 13, the old covenant is obsolete. And the word obsolete here is to, it's, it's to make old. God's own words, he says, the old covenant is obsolete. And yet millions of Jews today, even today, are hanging tenaciously onto this old covenant, even though their own scriptures, the Torah, through their own beloved prophet, Jeremiah, has been telling them for well over 2,000 years that a new covenant has come. God has replaced it with a far superior covenant. It's like having, it's like having a photo of a person. We all know what separation is. I haven't seen my mother for two and a bit years now. I've got a photo of my mother. I know what she looks like, and the photo reminds me. But it's not the real person, right? And hopefully one of these days when we're allowed out of jail again, I can go to see my mother. Now, what would it be like if I arrived there in South Africa and saw my mum, gave her a big hug, and then walked away and looked at my photo for the rest of the... I'd rather have this than her. doesn't make sense. You've got the reality. Why would you have the, the shadow? Get the point of Hebrews? So what do we do with this? I want three points of application and then we're through. First one is this. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and with us on, online and you're feeling despondent or in despair. You see, you and I may feel crushed. We, we might feel dejected. We might feel bewildered by what's happening around us. Life's never been like this. We might even feel broken. But our eternal salvation has never depended on our changeable feelings or changing circumstances. Christ has entered the heavenly sanctuary. And he's there praying for us right now, even though he's here. And he intercedes for us before the throne of God. And our names are enrolled in heaven's records. If you're a believer here today, your name is written up in the Lamb's book of life. No one and nothing can take it out of there. COVID, you thought you were strong. You're nothing. Here's our confidence. Our faith is grounded not in what we are, please get this, but in who we trust. Our faith is not dependent on what we have done or ever will do, but on who He is and has done as the perfect Son, our perfect High Priest. And here He is extending His mercy to us again this morning and saying, Come to me. Be forgiven. I will forgive sin. So the second point of application is this. You and I are under the new covenant, right? We're in 2021, going 2022. We're under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And it contains the better promises. I don't know if you noticed those. All God's I will promises to you. Go and look at them, verses 10 to 12. I'll come with you. It says this. I will put my laws into their minds. That's you and I. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Beautiful. 
Now these you can name and claim. Go and do that. It's the only thing you can name and claim. God's promises to you in context of what he's done for you. And then lastly, God doesn't keep a record of our sins in order to use them against us. And for me, this is the greatest encouragement. Rather, God forgives and loves us, even as we might suffer through the consequences of our own sins. He hasn't given up on us. He hasn't remembered those sins. You see, God is either the God of perfect grace, or He is not God. Grace forgets, period. He who is perfect love cannot and will not hold grudges because of sin. If he does, then he isn't perfect love. And if he isn't perfect love, we might as well get up here and go fishing. That's not a good data. Because it's useless, fairy tales. But God says, verse 12, his own words, I will forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. And I choose to take God at his word. And I praise him for his deliberate forgetfulness. I praise God for that. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, you are almighty. We are infinite, temporary, and sinful. You are the all-forgiving God. We are constantly sinning people. You are the one who permanently takes away our sins when you've forgotten them. We keep remembering the past. And keep living in the past when you have said, I've taken your sins away. Now live with me today and into the future. You can live a life of victory in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work you are doing on our behalf. Thank you that even now you are allowing us to be changed, to be like you, Jesus. Help us now as we go into this week and as we put these lessons into practice, as we go out into a world which is taken over by fear. May we know that we have nothing to be fearful for because you are almighty God interceding for us. Our hope is tied up in you and you cannot be conquered by anything outside. Lord, help us to live lives which have Christ in us and that will reflect to a world that we are fearless in the face of fear because we have Jesus Christ. And that will speak of your greatness. And others will want to come and know about this source of strength, this source of forgiveness, this source of hope. Help us in this. We are weak, but you are eternally strong. We praise your name. Amen.